You're listening to a special edition of Customer Experience Insights. I'm your host, Scott Nagel. I lead our consultant program here at Genesis. This is the second in a four-part series of podcasts where we explore the best-selling book, Empathy in Action, written by Genesis CEO, Tony Bates, and Dr. Natalie Petahoff. Each episode features an industry influencer as they engage with Natalie on key topics from this new book. Robert Harris, an influential consultant, speaker, and president of Communications Advantage, joins us for today's podcast where we discuss his key takeaways from the first five chapters of Empathy in Action along with Natalie. Here's our conversation. All right, it's great to have you back, Natalie. Thanks for joining us today, Robert. Can you tell our audience about yourself and what you do? Sure, Scott. I'm a technology consultant, and originally I focused on telecommunications and contact center technologies. That's still a large part of my my practice, but our company has now expanded to include cloud computing and software as a service cost management, really based out of the needs I've seen from customers. We, We kind of follow the needs. But actually, early in my career, I started as a facilities manager for a a Medicare supplemental insurance company in Long Beach, where I still live. And managing the phone system was just part of a facilities manager's job. I will say, though, that my experience in managing facilities started me off very well grounded in the non-technical and the business side of my consulting practice. I think even now with kind of understanding with hybrid work and the various workplaces that people are trying to experiment with, I think that background really, really makes a difference in having more than just a technical background helps. Absolutely. Listen, Robert. Today, we're focusing on the first five chapters of the book. I thought we'd start with a question that you raised for Natalie about what's different today that makes putting empathy into action critical instead of just morally the right thing to do. Is there anything you want to add to that before we ask Natalie to respond? Oh, yeah, sure. I'd be happy to add to that. The book gives some examples very early on about the second industrial revolution and the human cost of all of the growth and innovation that took place. And it gives examples. I don't think this it specifically says Standard Oil and Carnegie Steel, but those are the companies that come to mind to me. And really what I see that stopped them from becoming the, um, they were very business centric. And what stopped them from becoming ultra business centric practices was not that they weren't successful. They were extremely successful. It was really things like government regulation. So I'm really interested in Natalie's take on what makes now different, you know, aside from the government stepping in and saying, you can't do things this way, or you can't do things that way, or breaking up monopoly. There's really no disagreement about customer and employee empathy being the right thing to do. I think we all just know that, you know, but is there something about today's environment that makes it actually business critical where a company will not succeed without doing it? Well, I think there's a number of factors. It's it's a really interesting point in time, I think. It's a I think we'll look back at this as a historical change-making moment. I think it starts first with the change in expectations from Consumers using technology, so let's say Apple Watch, getting a ride share, watching Netflix, having a five-year-old talk to their grandparents over Zoom. So brands like Apple and Netflix and Uber and Starbucks and Airbnb and Tesla, with these easy-to-use apps and consumer technologies, consumers expect a highly personalized and contextually relevant effortless experience. So you take that, so all those brands kind of set the level 
And now consumers expect not only the brands that they deal with or they buy from or patronize to be like that, but it's also changed the standard for what we want at work. And I think COVID has been a really interesting point in time. And I think it slowed everything down and gave us it was kind of a big inflection and reflection point. And I think a lot of people looked at their jobs and looked at what they were doing and said, I don't want to do this anymore. And so, you know, resulting in the great resignation and a lot of organizations are short staffed. And if you don't have people, you can't really run a business. So that's really demanding that leaders look at the future of work. And, you know, we talked about this earlier when we were catching up about remote employees and how important the whole work experience for remote employees. So I think change in customer expectations, change in employee expectations. And then I think, you know, we have technologies that we haven't ever had in the history of time that can deliver on a more really codify the human experience. Very good. Well, Natalie, in chapter one, you and Tony write about the primacy of the personal technology in our life. One thing that stood out was the trust factor. You must empower your business to deliver employee-centric experiences and build employee trust. Then they are motivated to provide outstanding personalized customer experiences. Robert, I want to ask you, why did this stand out and what was interesting to you? It was interesting because I had thought before about how much actually consumer trust on the consumer side, how important that was for your customers to trust your organization. It reminded me of an article I'd written in 2014 called What Enterprise IT Can Learn from the Apple Watch. And I wrote it at the CTIA wireless show in Las Vegas. And it was very real time. Apple had just had an Apple event where they surprised everyone with a simulcast from Cupertino to unveil the Apple Watch. But a week earlier, well, actually a year earlier, Apple had added the health kit for iPhones earlier in the year, but had also suffered some bad publicity only nine days earlier when some celebrity iCloud photos were hacked and exposed, some of them nude photos. So um, that, of course, made great headlines for, for everybody to see. And so I, I think about it. They're all now that here they are at CTIA Wireless announcing a product that is even more personal than the hacked iPhones. And before all of this, there was a 2014 survey by the Values Institute of over 50,000 consumers. They showed Apple as the fourth most trustworthy brand out of 30 companies. And it is number six out of 100 trustworthy brands in, the, in a Forbes survey. And that trust, I believe, is what helped them to survive a change like, uh, like this one or a crisis like this one. In a YouGov survey, one third of the surveyed respondents had changed their password practices because of this iCloud hack. Because the hack happened, this trust mindset is what was so powerful. It wasn't, this is a big fail from Apple. I can't trust them anymore. I'm going to really think about using any new products, especially things that take my health information. No, that wasn't how people responded. It was, we trust Apple. And if this can happen to Apple, I'd better take my security more seriously. So trust is a very, very powerful component of what a company projects to its consumers and, of course, to its employees. Absolutely. Um, Natalie, anything to add about trust? Yeah, I think I think trust is really key. And if you look at Clayton Christensen, a late professor from Harvard, talked a lot about the job to be done. And one of the things that as we were, you know, Tony had asked me, Nat, why do you think businesses really haven't adopted? Like we talk 
give a lot of lip service to customer experience, employee experience, but why haven't they really, really gone the distance? And they think that the idea of customers and employees being expendable, um, that you can just always get another employee or there's always going to be more customers. And I think we started out with the premise that if you really look at business from a customer and employee's point of view, so using our four empathy pillars of listen, understand, and predict, act, and learn, and really see experiences from their point of view and change them, right? So they are employee and customer centric. That creates a sense of trust, a sense of respect, being seen and heard, which then creates that sense of loyalty. And so it's kind of a, a circular process of showing people that you really have their back and really understand what they need. And then that leads to the trust and then the trust leads to the loyalty in it. And I think this is, it's interesting because I think we are now kind of at that point in time with respect to technology and humans and human behavior, where we really need to look at this differently and make sure that we're, we're really addressing, you know, the zeitgeist of the times, which is not creating kumbaya factories and talking about being nice, but actually really, truly transforming our organizations and how we treat people. Yeah. You know, we see so many articles, blogs, a lot of reporting on CX, but not so much on EX, the employee experience. What, what's it going to take for employee experience, EX, to be part of the conversation as we move forward? Well, I think there's a big motivation. I have a, a friend who uses a delivery service and he has a great product, but the delivery service, they cannot keep people staffed. And so the delivery's not on time. It's to the wrong address. They have to come back and re-deliver. And so you start to look at how that impacts my friend's business, right? Their product is great, but that last step in the supply chain is getting messed up. And so now people are saying, ah, I don't want to buy from you anymore. So I think there's a really, if you look at the great resignation and you look at employees, I was going to a restaurant and we had to wait 40 minutes, not because the restaurant had was completely full, but because there were empty tables because they just didn't have enough people to get us, you know, to seated and served. And so I, I think one of the things that is really, truly happening is this idea of realizing the value. I think employees were taken for granted and realizing that if you don't have them, you really can't run a business. There's nobody to provide services or products. And it's such a simple concept, right? No employees, no business. And to go a little further, they're not on the balance sheet. So when they're not on the balance sheet, I think that they don't really feel like an asset that should be accounted for. And so part of what we're talking about in the book is creating this employee and customer respect movement and really looking at you know, our P&L sheets and, and understanding we really do need to think about the value of our employees and use that empathy, trust, and loyalty for employees as well as customers. Absolutely. Robert, I know we spoke that you've got some strong thoughts on this. So um, go ahead. Oh, yeah, because the the one example that really comes to mind of customer experience over employee experience is Amazon. You look, you look at Amazon, they've always been very, very customer centric and they've worked to customize the user experience and have ridiculously fast delivery at times. So of course, during the pandemic, this made them a, a, a real hero. 
you know, it literally. But then starting in 2020, there were all kinds of, there was all kinds of publicity about this deficiency in the employee experience. It suddenly came to light. You had a Time Magazine article. I worked at the Amazon Fulfillment Center. They treat workers like robots. So they have to do a press release. No, we don't treat workers like robots. And then 60 Minutes did examining Amazon's treatment of its workers. And another one was inside the hellish workday of an Amazon warehouse employee. So these are really bad headlines. And part of the response that Amazon gave was requiring their warehouse workers to attend what they called working well huddles. And in the working well huddles, they routinely watched videos that described ways to stretch and to lift bins safely. And just because they probably needed to keep with topics, some of the videos offered nutritional advice and how to reduce your carbs and eat more vegetables. And some of the workers criticized that, first of all, as just a Band-Aid and also creating this implication that the workers were the responsible. You know, it's not our problem. You're just, you're not eating right. That's why you can't keep up. So that the workers are responsible for any issues or maladies that they may have had. And I think what this really shows is when, when you lose that level of trust, and it becomes public like that, a company like Amazon can end up with a really steep uphill climb to change that impression that their working conditions are substandard. And so far, I don't believe this has measurably impacted Amazon brand loyalty. And like Natalie pointed out, maybe we, we just don't have the right measurements for it. But I also wonder if it's more like a crack in the foundation. And getting back to the iCloud hack example, what if these reports about employee treatment had been about Apple right after either Steve Jobs retired or right after the iCloud hacks. And it could be that any problem that happens on the customer experience side, once people start getting a bad experience as a customer, as Natalie mentioned with the with the delivery service that, that was starting to fall apart, it would be natural. Human nature would make them to start think about the reports of how people are treated in the warehouse and all the things they've heard. And it would, it would exponentially increase the dissatisfaction thinking, well, they can't even deliver on time to me and look how they treated people according to 60 minutes. So I think that it does create kind of a weakness in one of the pillars and eventually can impact the customer perception of a company all of a sudden at once. Yeah, no, that's some great examples. Natalie, in chapter four of the book, you introduce a concept, it's called the experience index, and it's a measurement tool and, and so much more. Can you tell us about that? So one of the things that we wanted to do was to make the book as actionable as possible. So part of one of the teams I'm on here at Genesis is called the experience index team. And what we're looking at is for different industries and for different moments, you know, in time, like let's say searching for something on a website, checking out a shopping cart or returning something, those could be examples in a retail industry. We started to look at what if we, and this goes back to the business centric versus customer centric, as well as employee centricity. We're looking at those experiences and we're asking employees and customers, what would be an optimal experience for you? right? In each of those different moments in time and interacting. And by getting a large baseline and being able to connect that baseline of, of what is a great experience, right? So benchmarking and then connecting those experiences with business KPIs, we're able to start to look at what is an ideal experience, right? So there's the concept of empathy in action and looking at things from their point of view. And what we wanted to do is create something that was very actionable so that people could start to contribute their experiences and get a benchmark or baseline. 
and be able to determine where are they with respect to their peers or even adjacent different, you know, let's say that you're in banking, but what could you learn from Starbucks, right? So sometimes looking at an adjacent uh, industry can be really helpful. And then there's an assessment on the website. It's at genesis.com assessment. And then the next step would be, okay, so now I see where my gaps are in my experience, right? And where I am with respect to my peers or adjacent markets. And I can see, I can pull the levers. If I change this or I change that, how it would affect my business or the business KPIs that you want to measure. And the last step is really doing a gap analysis to determine, okay, what do I need to do to be able to deliver that ideal experience? And so the online assessment is kind of like a a mini Cosmo quiz, right? We have a big, long assessment that you'd use to really go in and analyze a business and do a workshop. But this gives you a pretty good idea of how well you're using the empathy pillars and how well you're using the systems of technology and what we call business success, which would be org change and leadership and all those kinds of things. And that gives you a good baseline so that you can start to assess where you are with respect to implementing empathy in action. Very good. Robert, how do you think we could get the word out to companies to embrace this index, the experience index? You know, it's it's something that just has to be important to people. A lot of times when I consult and the client will have a request for proposal process with competing solutions and the client does their due diligence on the finalists to evaluate the solution, they'll check the references that are given by the company. And of course, those are usually people that have a great relationship with the company. Although sometimes you get surprised, you get some very candid responses. So that's always good. But then the other the other half of that whole background check is the company will send whatever financial documents they have, the Security and Exchange Commission filing, or if it's not public, some other financial statement to their finance department to evaluate the company's strength. And that's the whole sole evaluation of company strength. Finance looks at, at the financial charts. And even though in the SEC filing, for example, there's a lot of other great information about product development and risks, they really don't look beyond the numbers a lot of times. That's a great source of information because it has to be true or else. What I mean by or else is they're fraudulent. They can tell you anything they want in a brochure, but if they're saying that they're developing a product and it's in a report that's going to investor, investors, that's a different story. But I think that really we in the industry have to make it important. We have to start asking about customer and employee experience and asking for things at least like the experience index and asking for quantifiable information about that. And if we believe it's important, start asking for it, more people will start producing it in those competitive environments. How would something like this become like a standard, right? An industry standard? I don't know. I think that's a really interesting problem because already there's so many competing standards. And I don't know if what matters more is whether it's the most used and recognized. Natalie, do you have any ideas about how we could make it a standard? Or? Well, I, th- I think, you know, Peter and Fahim and, and our team are doing a really good job of establishing for various vertical industries what are those most important moments in time and experiences, right? And so that's our first step is creating those experience maps and then inviting companies to participate, right? And it's just to start to benchmark their experiences against this. And I think where it will really make a difference, I mean, the, the standard kind of for this kind of measurement is NPS. And 
NPS was a really great step in the right direction. But I think the downfall of NPS is it says, would you recommend us, right? And so whether somebody would recommend them to their friends or family doesn't necessarily have the same level of credence in business because you don't really measure whether they did. And so what we're really looking at is what is that ideal experience? What's your gap between the ideal experience and what you're actually delivering now? And then once you get that gap, starting to be able to pull the levers to say, well, if I change this or I change that about the experience, then this is how it's going to change my business outcome, right? And then using the assessment to determine your capabilities, make those changes and then go back and see how changing that experience really transformed your business. And so I think because what Peter and team are doing is really connecting the experience to a business outcome, I think that's where the rubber is going to meet the road. And it's just a matter of getting the word out and having people understand and be aware of it. But I think like if I, if I was a business person and I wanted to be convinced or I wanted a way, I think a lot of people who are in the customer experience contact center, digital, you know, experience world do know that customer and employee experience matters, but they've never really been able to measure it. And so I think because we are a very measure centric world, we want to know, okay, if I did change this and I spent this money to change these things, how is that going to make a difference to my business? And so, you know, it's a way to help businesses and business leaders be able to quantify making those changes. Very good. You're speaking of Peter Graff, right? Our chief strategy officer. Yes, I am. Just in case listeners didn't know. Hey, tell me about the assessment. Is this something you can do online right now or is it something we're still developing? It's it's available online. You can do it now. You said genesis.com forward slash assessment? Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, that's great. That whole comparison to net promoter score really resonates with me just just as a consumer, because I think of so many times when I've gotten this survey and it's like, sure, I'd recommend this company I tell people, yeah, go go buy it at Walmart or, you know, go to this gas station, it's cheaper. But that doesn't necessarily reflect that I'm getting the ideal experience. So I, I can totally see that. It really doesn't measure the empathy that I'm feeling as a consumer. So that's a great point. It just, it just really struck me as very true. No, me too. Well, Robert, I know you read the whole book, but we are focusing just on the first five chapters. And I want to ask you, what stood out the most? It's, I have, you, you made me pick one, which was a tougher task, and, but <laughs> one moment that really clicked was the value of employee experience. And I guess if you look at the first questions I had, you know, why is this really important? You know, why can't a company just treat employees, you know, do the minimum for employees and get rich? But the value of employee experience really clicked. Empathy in Action stated that businesses must be able to change their business strategy and plans on a dime with rapidly changing market conditions. And I thought about a meeting I once had with a CFO of a company where we had recommended telecom solutions. And we were talking about the the user interface. And he said that if the company invested in it, employees just needed to use it or else. He actually used the term or else, and just like in the book. And I had already seen projects fail when employees didn't buy into the solution. They could uh, they could sabotage a project either intentionally or usually non-intentionally, just, just not being comfortable with the solution. So with exponential technologies, employees have so much more mobility. 
And if a company needs to quickly change or pivot because of market conditions and they don't have a loyal workforce, that workforce has other choices. They can shop around for jobs in a way they never could before. And that's what I really appreciate about the book. It makes a good case for employee experience being the best competitive option, not just a feel-good thing to do because you should. There's been tons of books for decades about treating employees right because, because it's the right thing to do. Now, I think what's different too is you can be a little mom and pop shop and the treats all 20 of your employees like a family. And you can also provide this very unique boutique kind of experience to a select group of customers. And that select group group of customers might pay a premium for your service, but you can still have blind spots even at that level. And more importantly, you can't scale that. There's no way you can replicate that just with manual processes. And so I think that's what the book does a really good job of pointing out. Excellent. Oh, thank you. Well, Natalie, we're going to close with you. Any final thoughts after our discussion here that you'd like to share with our audience? Well, I'd just like to challenge everyone who's listening to try on a new pair of glasses and see the world through your customer employee's eyes. And I bet you will change the decisions you make, the metrics you measure, and the business outcomes that you can deliver. Well, thank you both so much for being with us today. It's been fantastic. Well, thank you, Scott. And thank you, Natalie. Thank you. All right, I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Robert and Natalie. Stay tuned as we're going to continue this four-part series with each episode featuring a different influential industry consultant as we discuss sections of the book with Natalie and their key takeaways. Next up will be Lori Bachland, and we'll discuss her key takeaways from chapters six through nine. If you have any questions about our discussion today, don't hesitate to contact us. You can reach us via email at influencermarketing at genesis.com. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you'll join us as we continue this series on the book, Empathy in Action.